Hello, and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, where every week we ask one of our favorite comedians to pick one of their favorite topics, and then together we trace its entire history to find out exactly what ruined it. I'm joined, as always, by Wen Powers. Wen, who are we talking with this week? Andrew, we are talking to Gianmarco Cerezi, a comedian whose name I was so afraid to say out loud because I was positive I was going to butcher it. (laughs) (laughs) This was so much fun. We had a great topic here. We decided to talk about therapy this week. Yeah, I was kind of worried because I thought like, oh, therapy, like we're going to get into the history, but also like our personal stuff was going to get involved. And like, that's such like a dicey thing, you know, talking about therapy. You're like, you're not sure what to say, if you're revealing too much, if you're making someone else feel like they're sharing too much. And Jean-Marco, God bless him, he hopped in with both feet. He did a front flip off the boat into those waters, and it was just impressive as hell. It was great. Also, he knew so much stuff. Like, we're talking about type here and development, and he's all in on it. It was so much fun, and I think very funny. The history is fascinating. And guys, if you want to get to know a bit more about us personally, well, we share our therapy history. You can't really get more personal than that. No, you cannot. So guys, uh, sit back and listen to the very funny Jean-Marco Ceresi. Our guest today is one of my favorite comedians. I was lucky enough to work with him on Cabin Fever. He's been featured on Netflix's Bonding, Amazon's Comics Watching Comics, and has a new special, which is absolutely fantastic, Shelf Life on Amazon. That's also going to be available on Sirius and Pandora, February 23rd, and available everywhere else, March 2nd. Gianmarco Ceresi, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. I just realized normally when I do a bit before, I couldn't remember when I do it. We would have already introduced when. All right, when, say something to Gianmarco now as we get to see the it in. Wow, this is a seamless transition to the new intro, guys, and I'm very happy we're doing <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> so, guys, whatever part of this ends up back in, when I decided, look, we have these episodes, we really want to talk about our favorite parts. We said, what if we record the intro afterwards? This was all Wen's idea. I don't have the good ideas. I just learned the stuff. And then we can talk about the highlights of the show. And this started with me immediately forgetting the order we do anything in every single week. I should really know this by now. We're just, we're firing on all cylinders. Only the best for you, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, this is, this is still pretty new. What episode is this? This is episode 20 something, right? 26? Yeah, I think 26. Not like still, it's gone on long enough that we should have a better handle yeah. on it than what sure, we do. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> like you're over here just like episode three, you guys are thriving. You're doing great. <laughs> But yeah, you know what? Let's go with that. This is our fourth episode and we are killing it, guys. Uh, So, Jean-Marco, thank you very much for coming out. By the way, before we had you on uh, Cabin Fever, my younger sister texted me and sent me your video and said, this this guy is so good. And I said, yeah, I know. I've got him on in like two weeks. <laughs> oh, really? What video? It was one of your uh, TikToks. I think it was the one about your uh, kissing your father. Oh, that's very sweet. It was a great video, too. That's one of those like first jokes I wrote. And I'll like do it in a show with a lot of new material. And they're like, that one joke that you wrote five years <laughs> ago, that was really good. And I'm like, OK, that's cool. I'm trying to pivot a little but sure i got some new stuff now but but yeah <laughs> there are some of those jokes though that like you can't shake like that i have jokes in my set that like i'm just like i love it and it always works why would i abandon this beautiful child of mine because it's like you know it's when you first started you wrote about like you know those things that you have 30 years of truth of 
and like kissing my father. I've kissed him for a very long time. So that's, uh, you know, that, that's going to pop. Absolutely. I mean, I've got some too, but after a while, it's, I feel bad for the ones that I use for the intro every time. And it's like, okay, this is a really strong intro, but I know every comedian in the audience has heard this so many times now. Well, that's what's embarrassing. It's more when other people <laughs> see you do it again. I've, I was doing, you know, where you'd headline twice in the night and I'd feel that feeling of like the wait staff knows I'm full of shit. They know where this is going. They know I'm going to go like, not. <laughs> and that's tough. There's this weird expectation that all comedians are just making it up on the spot. It's like, no, we work on this for so long. And like, I'm going to run, I'm going to run jokes into the ground until I actually record an album. And then I cannot actually do it again. Like that's my cutoff. I think that was the best feeling. Like when I remember, you know, when you first saw stand-up comedy and you thought like, wow, they're just, I remember like when I first started stand-up and I'd be like, I don't understand how is it their combination of words is getting a big pop and I'm getting chuckles. And you, there's just something it takes. A, it, but that's when you love stand-up when it's a little bit magic. Now I'm like, Oh, I know. Oh, wow. You went there. Oh, <laughs> oh, it was your mom the whole time. Really? Okay. Which is, is why it's so hard when you see like a comedian's comedian and you can spot every comedian in, in the room because it's like, oh my God, this writing is amazing and unique and there's something so special. But every regular audience member is just sitting there having no idea. And it's like, you want them to appreciate it so much. Sure. I mean, I've had a couple like dark jokes where like comedians are like, you got to do this one on stage. <laughs> I do it to utter silence. Yeah. I had a bit, it was, it was like about like, they're building a, a Titanic that's going to replace Titanic 2. So the joke was essentially like, <laughs> You know, I was like, that used to be a tragedy. Someday they're going to make, you know, your plane rides through where the towers used to be. And like all these comedians would be like, yeah, that's that's a smart connection. And I did it in a Times Square show and I've never heard silence that extreme. <laughs> yeah, th I, th I don't think that was the locale for it. Yeah, yeah sure, sure. Right at ground zero. I'm like, <laughs> right <God>. there. <laughs> but I've got a fairly clean set. And I do this one joke that I keep wanting to pull. I like it. And the other comedians say, no, you, you got to keep it in. But it's this joke. Um, when I was five, I asked my father where babies came from. And uh, he told me the stork, which was really upsetting. Such a young age to learn that my mom fucked a stork. I love it. I love it. I would love to hear you do that on stage at a family show. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that, that's it. My, the rest of my set uh, lead up is fairly clean. And then that one hits. And like, again, you can spot the couple people that are like, oh, I really like this. And they, it's always the one that they tell you to keep in, but it's the one that does so badly. Sure, sure. You could soften it. You could say a stork came in my mom. <laughs> you, don't you know, you know that, that super delicate way of saying it. Right. <laughs> I have a 9-11 opener that I'm just like, it either kills or it's absolutely silent and i but i love it every time i am a big fan of incest jokes i like incest jokes because i just think it's like it's not offensive in a traditional way it's just like oh my god and it's just i love them i love them. i'm gonna be honest with you i'm starting to think that the world's getting too cool with incest by looking at the world's pornography <laughs> and pop culture sure sure but they never actually look related now i'm a fan <laughs> I, I, see i think those videos are more about just like the oh this is gonna ruin our life i think every every incest it should be followed by like a like a three-hour drama about how their lives are irrevocably changed for the worse <laughs> and they're disowned that's what's exciting it's not that they're brother and sister it's that it will destroy the family 
Does that make sense? Yeah, then no, a follow-up porn like seven years later where they're all at Thanksgiving and it's just super awkward and nobody knows what to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we all reconnected in therapy, which brings us to our topic of today. <laughs> That's, that I love this segment. That's right. Jean-Marco wanted to talk about therapy today, something we are all a fan of and has you know a, a fascinating and sometimes terrifying history. So it was absolutely perfect. But we actually wanted to start with the positive because it's something that's benefited me personally. How about you guys? What, how's therapy been for you? I mean, for me, I was always skeptical when I was younger. I think I got, I, I think because I got some bad therapists. Yeah. Like when I was younger, my parents were divorced. I, I was depressed. And uh, I just got this therapist who I didn't want to talk to her. I didn't like her. And I would basically just play with action figures. And she would try to be like, oh, is the Green Ranger your stepfather? And I try to like interpret yeah. these stories from it. And I truly, I mean, Freud would argue you could tell something, but I truly was just telling stories. Right. And I guess my, my parents always had therapists, which made me skeptical about therapists because I was like, my parents are crazy or just like depressed. <laughs> and then after uh, in college, I went through like an existential breakdown. I should have gone to therapy, but I had a girlfriend who kind of took all the weight of that. And she was very kind and loving. But then she, we broke up. She married someone else and I went through a, a deep dive, deep uh, 22, maybe. And then two years later, finally, finally, I went to a place called the White Institute to get um, discounted therapy based on my income, which at the time was zero dollars. Because, you know, there's especially therapy is tough to go to. But when you also have the fact that it is expensive, it's even easier to say no, thank you. So this one, I paid thirty dollars a week for two hour and a half sessions and I did wow. that for a year. And then gradually, as I start getting a little better, my therapist, like every year, raises it marginally. I still pay. I, I see her now once a week for, you know, 75 minutes for I think it's $55 now. I'm a huge proponent. I wish I had gone much sooner. I got very lucky that the person I, I got paired with just randomly was someone I like. And I go every week and I've, I've entered, it's entered that slot in my mind like, Working out for me is like something I just have to do every day. So it has to occur. It's not something like, mm, I'm not in the mood this week. It's just like, well, I have to do this. It's like an obligation. So I'm a huge proponent. I've begged everyone I know to to go to therapy. Uh, some people eventually have. I don't know if I sped it along or, in fact, deterred them for even longer <laughs> as, a, as a bad role model for what might happen. But I, I just think of so many people that I'm like, if you could find a therapist that you like, someone that you could be honest with, someone you could like, especially you know, before we recorded this, we were talking about Twitter and social media online. We all have these personas. And for me, with my therapist, I really strive. Like if I'm late because I was fucking around, I try not to say it was the trains because I'm like, I want one space in my fucking life that I am honest and I think that's useful. Absolutely. And that, that's such a great a approach to it, too, realizing that this is one place where, I mean, you are supposed to be safe. And I, I had a fantastic therapist, well, I'll get into that a little bit later, that said he thinks every single person could benefit from therapy. 90% of people are not helped because they're seeing the wrong therapist. Sure. And that that's it. It's just you need to find someone that 
you you mesh with and, and when have have you been to, i mean i feel like every everybody in general but like comedians especially <laughs> should we use this to work out our issues but a lot of times it just reinforces them sure no i do i do therapy i uh, i'm actually back on a regular like schedule there was a while where i went like all the time for like a year and then like it was one of those things where I was like, I'm good now. And I stopped. <laughs> sure, sure. When, when you first said I do therapy, you sounded like Steve Carell in 40 year old version where she's like, where he was like, I've had sex. You're like, I've done therapy. It feels like a bag of sand. Yeah. <laughs> she asked me about my dreams and how my dreams are that I want to have sex with my parents. Like earlier <laughs> when we were that therapy, right? Imagine, imagine a time in the future where we've progressed. We're so emotionally mature that men, that's the thing where you're like, no, I've, I've seen, I've seen lots of therapists. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it was a, it was a thing where I went uh, like three years ago. I probably went for the first time. And it was one of those things where I was just in a hole and like literally was just like, I, I just, you know, I wasn't as funny as I used to be. I had gained like a bunch of weight. I was just sad i was doom scrolling all the time and it was just one of those things where my wife was just like okay you got to do something about this <laughs> and so I, I i took the plunge i started doing it but beforehand i was annoying and told people oh you should speak to someone you should do therapy but i was like not doing it myself which is like the biggest bullshit like thing of just like i'm pro <laughs> mental health for everyone but this guy <laughs> That's my biggest <laughs> argument for going to therapy is that you can legitimately tell other people to go to therapy. That's the number one motivator. So you can be like, you need therapy. I do it too. That's the number one. See this pinnacle <laughs> of, of great mental health before you? That's a product of therapy, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I had someone where uh, we'll have uh, when tell me if this is too much of a bummer and we can cut it afterwards. I, I know we discussed on. Uh, <laughs> I love the intro to this story. I'm not sure if we can cut it now. But go on. Yeah, <laughs> I know we discussed in like the episode with Pallavi that I'm disabled. And there was a period of, of about five years where it was to the point of almost bedridden. It's just a very painful illness in bed about 23 and a half hours a day. You're kind of tough to move because everything hurts. And Every therapist I'd seen in the past was very much, let's find some stuff you can do. And it's like, dude, I'm lying in bed. <laughs> I feel like there was something I could figure out. I would have figured this out. And I saw a great chronic pain specialist who really started with an attitude of, oh, yeah, man, that that really sucks. And we can't change that. <laughs> so what do we want to do about it? And and it was a big help because it was, it was just an adjustment to, you know, when you're you're disabled, you get in this mindset of fighting all the time, which is important. But there also has to be a, a degree of acceptance that this is what your life is. And this was this complete turnaround. And I, I thankfully saw him before I got too sick to, to go to therapy anymore. But it was a, a big help. And it's something that I, I still use today of, OK, you know, you keep working through it. You keep pushing. Now, obviously, now I'm at a stage where I can do comedy. I'm significantly better than I was. But it's, it's still lessons that I carried through. So I'm a huge proponent of this, but it all relied on finding a guy who understood the situation and was smart enough to, you know, help me work through it. Yeah, that's going to be tough to cut out, Andrew. That'd be pretty cunty to be like, you know what? <laughs> cut that shit out about how he felt better about it. Actually, that story was hilarious. How could yeah. we cut it? <laughs> <laughs> I just love the editing being like, delete, delete. Occasionally, we will, <laughs> we'll say something valuable on this show, but if it's too much of a bummer, you know what? Like, I, I don't need my lessons to help you all that much. The I think laughing helps you guys too. <laughs> no, I think that's good. I think, but I think that's totally what it is. It's like, 
to me, therapy is a is a, it's an abstract concept where it's like it could be helping with a, a particular uh, with a disability or if you get stuck with, you know, social media stuff or you have an eating disorder. It can mean so many different things. I think it's more like the philosophy of like trying to check in on yourself with a person outside of your life. That's kind of the biggest thing is someone outside of your immediate life who is tied to you with so many different strings where they can't tell you how they really feel or what they really think you should do, and have an outside observer. And you can learn so much more. There's very little you could say to them that's going to damage that relationship. Whereas the minefields of interpersonal relationships, you're like, is this something I can actually say to this person and it be cool or not become like a spin out kind of like, oh, now this is just like part of who we are. You could say something to your therapist and like, unless the therapist is like, do you want to talk about that ever again? It's like, no. And it's fine. <laughs> That's not something that has to actually be like a part of your ingrained relationship. The only thing that will ruin it is if you say you love them and don't do it, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'll say this. My therapist is very much like, I don't know a lot about her. She keeps a real space between us. I went, I had, I had a, a hernia I got from CrossFit and I was getting surgery for the first time in my life. And I was terrified, terrified. I'd be terrified if I got it again. And that was the one time after therapy session, I said to her, can I please give you a hug? And so that was like the one hug. But I like keep it like for that. For yeah. if I'm scared, I'm going to die the next day. I think there is a complicated thing, though, where like, I don't know if my therapist cares about me. I think she does to a certain extent. We've been seeing each other for six years, but it, there's money. And like whenever whenever we talk about raising the money, there is this fraught thing of like, oh, just just raise it. I don't even want to talk about it. Let's just put that aside <laughs> and let's have a human relationship. Stop reminding me this is a business. Right. <laughs> also, I'm not sure what I'm more impressed by. Your restraint in saving those hugs for life or death moments, or that we're almost 30 minutes into the recording and you just now mentioned CrossFit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped after that surgery. That surgery was a wake-up call. <laughs> You know, before I got into comedy and thought I was going to do medicine, I had this great abnormal psychology professor who, like, one of the, the first things he talked about, he was like, you're human, you want people to like you. You can't do that as a therapist. It doesn't matter if they like you. That is the opposite of what we're going for here. That was, like, the second lesson. The first lesson was, we're going to teach you about a lot of diseases. You don't have them. I love that. I love that. He got, it's like, no, I, this happens every year. You're going to think you have it. I promise you, you don't. I read The Sociopath Test. It was It's a really good book by Ron, oh, I forget. But it, but basically the book was like, everyone reads it and goes like, am I a sociopath? And kind of the, the moniker is like, if you are worried about it, you're not. <laughs> like that's one of the, you know, gen generalities of it. So there's a doctor named James Fallon who was teaching about sociopathy. And he was going to show his students a scan of a brain of somebody who was a sociopath and then a normal brain so they could see the different areas that light up. So he's just like, okay, I need a normal brain to use. So he scanned his own. He looked at the two sheets and went, fuck. Yeah. And found out that he was a sociopath from having his, it was like identical. And he told his wife and his, and his wife was pretty much just like, yeah, that checks out. Wow. 
That's incredible. I think this does get into the the, the distinction of uh, it's become such a popular term, but sociopathy and psychopathy are very different things. And also there are degrees. Not everyone that, that has this is a serial killer, but it, it's it's led to a lot of misunderstanding here. But also, yeah, if you've got it, that's probably something that's better to know. Yeah, they're not all serial killers. A lot of them are titans of industry. Uh, right. <laughs> like far too many. Or presidential figures. Yeah, or yeah exactly. <laughs> Leaders of the free world. Let's get into a, a little bit of the history of this. I know we're going to come back to personal stories on, you know, the, the where it went wrong side too, because that's going to be, there's a lot in therapy where it went wrong. But so I started looking into the history of this and was trying to figure out where do we want to start? Because for most of this, this is philosophy. This is very abstract. And uh, there's a, a, obviously a medical overlap, but for a while, it's kind of whatever you want it to be. So we're going to start with ancient Egypt and the theories on the function of the brain is really the beginning of this. And that goes back to the Edwin Smith papyrus and the ancient Egyptian medical text from around 1600 BCE. It's the oldest known surgical treatise on trauma. From the text, people suspect it was actually about war trauma and how to treat that. But the medical information in it dates as early as 3000 BCE. And this was unique among the other four medical papyri that exist because it takes a rational scientific approach rather than a magical one. But concepts are not in conflict with magic. We've talked about this before in our witchcraft episode, and it does even contain some spells as treatment, but science and magic were considered the same thing at the time. And this contains the first known description of cranial structures, the external surface of the brain, And the procedure demonstrates a level of knowledge of medicine that surpassed Hippocrates, who lived 1,000 years later. It was really incredible text. The Egyptians were great. They really were. They fucking nailed it. There's a lot of really cool stuff there. They're like, they had the iPhone 12 (laughs) 10,000 years before we did. It's really amazing how much stuff you look up. And it was like, okay, this is when it appeared in the the ancient world. And 2,000 years earlier, here's when Egypt did it. (laughs) Well, it's like, I think, and I, I uh, I took AP Psych in high school, which I loved. And, like, one of the cool things about psychology is, like, none of it's science, but you're creating, like, models with which you can try to find correlations. And, like, you see it in in that thing. Like, with all of it, some of them were, as we'll discuss, clearly problematic models. But, like, it's the same shit. It, ego, superego is not that far removed from whatever three terms the the ancient Egyptians used and the Hippocrates used. I actually think you have those exact things written down here a little bit later on when we get into the into Greece too. Greece is up next because that those are the ones that where they really start to redo the stuff Egypt already, already kind of started on. Because you've got Thales of Miletus, who was a Greek mathematician, one of the seven sages of Greece. This was around six twenty four to five forty eight. There's about a four to five year guess range of when he lived or was born and died. But this is the first guy to engage in scientific philosophy. This is no longer myth-based. And much of his philosophical work was on the nature of life, that all things are full of gods, is a statement you'll see a lot. Uh, He's not the origin of this concept, but he helped uh, advance it. And this meant that to have a soul means to be alive. And soul was suke then, or psyche. It's a bit of an oversimplification of the soul in Greece that had some nuances that aren't really covered by soul today, but it, it's still an important basis for the development of psychology. Scientology, got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, I mean, they, there's a lot of overlap there, yeah. This also led to the logic <laughs> of living things produce movement. Magnets can move things, so magnets are alive. That doesn't track. But he's an influencer of, of Plato and Socrates, and this is where Wen mentioned, because Plato introduces the three types of soul, the appetite of the spirited and the rational. And this theory led the field of psychology for over 2000 years. And this breaks it up into the appetite of being essentially desire, spirit of being the emotional and rational being 
the logical thought and learning aspect. Id, ego, superego. That, that yeah, whole yeah. lineup. It's, it's this, the same thing again. And in fact, Freud references this in what I think is kind of a dickish way, where it's like, I'm building on these great minds of the past. It's like, you're kind of making shit up, dude. Uh, <laughs> I'm changing the words of these great minds of the past. He also used their language. Like he, he borrowed e- ego. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a lot to say about Freud. But around the same time period, we've also got the ancient Eastern psychology because the Buddhist disciplines are doing things that really start to come out again, like 50 years from now. It's relatively recent that we start to really recognize the value because they're discussing psychology back in the uh, Tripitaka being composed around 550 BCE and likely not even written down until the first century BCE. The first part, the Sudapitaka, contains a series of discourses containing psychological material. He really gets in depth in this. And a central feature of Buddhist psychology is its methodology. It's based on personal experience through introspection and self-observation. Whereas before, again, during the the Freud period, you've got this outside analysis and you're going to tell me what you went through. I'm going to tell you what that means or, you know, maybe lead you to the conclusion. But they've really got incredibly advanced stuff here. They also recognize the importance of observing behavior. And they also really importantly, saw the mind as a psychophysical complex, which is referred to as Namarupa. The Nama referred to the mental components of a person, while Rupa refers to the physical. And Buddha has, again, the theory of motivation that's based on three cravings, uh, cravery for sensory gratification, craving for continued existence, which also includes, you know, needs, desire, hunger, sleep, success. And interestingly, the craving for annihilation or non-existence, which is associated with aggression and violence towards oneself and others. But early Buddhist texts present a theory about latent mental tendencies, the Anusaya, which explore behavior in regards to what is essentially a subconscious. And this is again, so far ahead of the rest of the world to realize this. I mean, again, Plato's kind of touching on this, but he mostly misses the point. Buddhism gets this early. I mean, if you want to talk about craving for annihilation, you're just like, oh, like that that makes no sense to me. I'm mentally healthy. Think about every time you've driven and you've just thought, what if I just turned into oncoming traffic (laughs) right now? Or like every time you're standing on a high, like on a high ledge and you look over and you just imagine like, what if I just flipped off this <laughs> no i i think you're right that, that there is this ingrained aspect and also when they, they tie it into aggression and violence i mean how often have you just said to yourself i'm doing something that was so fucking stupid it's just this this relatively harmful thought process of like i'm just gonna destroy myself right here because there's no one else around to do it sure i i hear that one about the building one i remember you know, not to name him, but Louis C.K.'s show back in the days we were all watching it. Back yeah. in the days we, we were all, all watching it. We all watched it, people. We all watched it. <laughs> You're all complicit. You all watched Louis and you all called him a genius. We didn't know, guys. <laughs> he did one. It was him. He was dating someone and they were on the roof and he talked about that feeling. And the woman he was dating, it might have been Pamela Adlon in the show, was like, people who are scared get are scared of heights because they think they want to jump off. And I don't know if I fully agree, but it was the idea that the reason people are scared of like tall buildings is because they're scared they want to do it. And uh, I thought about that. I get it because like you'll talk to people who will not go anywhere near an edge just because you start creating scenarios in your head where like I'm going over that edge no matter what. And it's like, yeah, Yeah. that's that's a drive. (laughs) That is like a there is a slight thing there. Just like there's a slight need to go over that edge. I actually believe that the craving annihilation thing is very undersold and universally understood, even if you're not talking about it. 
I agree. I think it's it's really significant, and it was such a cool thing to touch on. And it's interesting because I feel like the Western contribution to psychology and therapy didn't really come till the 1900s. Again, Greece had some stuff that we built on, but they they didn't really nail it. But it's it's the East at this time is really getting it. Even during the medieval period, the advancements came from Muslim physicians who introduced practices to treat patients suffering from diseases of the mind, or what would now be called mental illness. Whereas before this, it was, you know, you had the wandering uterus, which was women go crazy because the uterus has decided to go somewhere else in the body. <laughs> and nothing to do but just kind of deal with it, guys. You got to move in uterus, that's it. But here they're, they're working on actual treatments. And Ahmed uh, bin Sal al-Balki in the late ninth century was among the first in his tradition to discuss disorders related to both the mind and body, claiming if the mind gets sick, the body may follow. And again, this was something that is now recognized to be true, but was was not something that was understood at the time. This was really revolutionary. So the, the next big shift is in the Enlightenment, where we get philosophers just going nuts for this stuff. Now they really want to nail down what psychology is. And I mean, philosophy during this period is, is really interesting, but it also just feels so incredibly pompous. It's hard to get through sometimes. So yeah, this is when the world entered its freshman year of college. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Well, it had to have been so exciting before anyone knows any shit. Like, I always think about back even Greek times, people are like, they were a mathematician and a philosopher and an astrologer. And it's like, well, okay. They were they had no one to disagree with them on any of their fucking theories. <laughs> so, like, when you start psychology, you really get to be like, oh, I figured this. I Sometimes people are happy. It's nice they're sad. <laughs> and they're spirits and devils. And you get to really have fun. <laughs> You're, you're, it's like a creative. You're you, honestly, it's like it's you're more of a creative than you are like a scientist in this realm. I mean, these days there's no psychologist who isn't also well versed in, in in neurology. But back then, you could just be kind of like a writer and you know, Marion Williamson, like just everything <laughs> yeah. about your feeling. Yeah, it's kind of like how today you're a YouTuber and an Instagrammer and a Twitterer. <laughs> just like, no, these are just things that I'm kind of interested in and doing and nobody, there's no gate of entry. Well, and also when you consider too, like how few of these documents survived, it's like, Look, we got five people to listen to. Are we really saying these five guys were right? The only ones in recorded history whose papers survived? <laughs> they happened to nail it? Yeah. So <laughs> during the Enlightenment, psychology actually appears as a term in the early 1500s, which finally overtakes mental philosophy as a term in England in mid-19th century, which this heavily influences Descartes. Philosophy at this point has a profound impact on future experimental psychology, which is why it's so relevant. Locke, Hume, Berkeley, Spinoza, Leibniz. These are the greatest philosophers of their generation, and they really significantly impacted the study of psychology. But their work is a whole different, and honestly, I think too long an episode to get into. <laughs> so, so we're just going to ignore it. It's, so, I mean, look, yeah. it's interesting stuff. If they've gotten enough attention, okay, we don't. Spinoza doesn't need another podcast episode about. Him. Look, if you, if the entire audience wants to go read forty-eight books first, I will read them along with you, and we can discuss this like experts. But that's what it's going to take. And honestly, I'm exhausted. Andrew, is that a promise? Are you promising to read forty-eight books to do book reports with all of our listeners? Honestly, I do not have as much faith in our listeners that they're going to do the work first. I think I'm safe. But sure, if you all want to do it yeah i'll do it with you 
<laughs> so let's get to the modern psychology with Wilhelm Wundt. When do you want to tell us a little bit about Wilhelm? Yeah, I would love to. Uh, so 1879, Wilhelm Wundt opened the first psychological clinic at the University of Leipzig, which was the first formal laboratory for psychological research. And so this marked uh, psychology as an independent field of study. It's not internal medicine. It is its own thing. Psychology, you could go to this place for psychology. You go this place for your heart operation. They are two different <laughs> things. Stop asking your heart surgeon why you're sad all the time, guys. He's not going to pay attention anymore. You got Wilhelm to deal with that now. Let's also discuss, too, this, this is slightly ahead of the era of the barber surgeon, where the rule was, well, he's already got the tools, so he's going to give you a haircut, pull your tooth, and cut off your leg. I mean, we are not far from this era when they said, hey, maybe psychology is its own thing. And yeah, so he created this broad program of empirical psychology, he developed a system of philosophy and ethics from basic concepts of psychology. So he brought together all of these multiple disciplines. And this is the first time it, it's ever been done. Uh, he formed the first academic journal for psychology. This is really a big boom of psychology, which is why he's known as the father of experimental psychology. Am I doing well right now, Andrew? Because I'm just going through your notes and really believing in myself and trying to give an air of confidence. You're, ki you're killing it. The last thing on Vunt is his stuff was so broad that uh, I found some lectures for one term and it included the psychology of language, anthropology, logic, and epistemology. A following term had psychology, brain and nerves, as well as physiology, cosmology, historical and general philosophy. This was his understanding that like, look, this is a massive thing. If we wanna understand the brain, we have to understand everything. And he was really good at it. And it's really helped develop this. I mean, again, they start doing studies now. They, they start recognizing these patterns in humans. They start doing tests where, I mean, it, these are very simple things at first, but just recognizing the way humans process information is incredibly valuable to the study of the mind. Yeah, I mean, it all tracks it. It all has to, has to be linked. And, you know, how you receive information is going to affect how you process it. I I buy it. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> so 20th century, I'm going to go through briefly because honestly, this is where there's a lot of advancement, but it's also, I think, the least interesting part. Yeah, I got to say, I got to say, you don't you don't seem to respect Freud. I, I have a lot of issues with Freud. Uh, <laughs> Did you have a bad relationship with your father, perhaps? Is that what led to your issues with Freud as a paternal figure? Here's what I found when I was reading on Freud. And by the way, I had a professor who, who was a who studied philosophy and was so into Freud. He tied it into like every lecture he possibly could, despite the fact that it was not a philosophy class. Well, well, let me just mention, just since people can't see the document that you sent us, it is four full pages, and you have one sentence, one sentence that says, psychoanalysis appears in the 1890s with Freud. And that is it. That is a pretty... <laughs> I, I can discuss Freud as much as we want without notes. <laughs> Freud is enraging because when you start looking into Freud and from modern interpretations, basically what happened was he worked backwards. He came up with a theory that he wanted to fit and then he plugged in why he thought it was happening in a way that he figured would make the most sense. And when people questioned him on it, his response was, I mean, your brain's not working right, my guy. Clearly, you're crazy if you disagree with me. <laughs> and he was considered one of the great minds of the time. And it was one of those things where he was like so powerful where nobody could go up against it. Of course he was. If you disagreed with him, you were insane, Andrew. <laughs> 
That's right. how you do it. That's how you get ahead in this game. <laughs> so fine. What is your your take on Freud to start? And then we can get into all the stuff Freud did wrong. I I like Freud. A because I think uh, whoever popularizes psychology. That's that's a good thing in my book. Anyone who who spreads the idea that you have an unconscious mind and you're not fully aware of the things motivating you to do the things that you want to do. For me, that's a goal in and of itself. It's spreading the good word. I think he explored sex in a way that while I think it was a little bit too much with, uh, you know, wanting to fuck your mom and stuff. I do think he talked about sex in a way where people were like putting sex on the back shelf and he really dug deep and got into it. And I think he created a lot of systems that at least gave people a framework with which to ultimately dismantle them. But I, I think he created a lot of models that were user-friendly. He was a popularizer as well as an investigator. This actually would have been great for the In Their Defense section at the end. But also, I hate that you started with the one part that I actually fully agree with. And this was the part where he did make a significant contribution. His work on the unconscious and subconscious was the the, the one part that has really held up. Everything else was was largely made up. Again, he he comes up with the Oedipus theory, and then it was, they say, what about women? So now it's the Electra theory. That's a thing too, I guess. It was very unscientific, but his value in popularizing therapy as a tool, unfortunately, can't be understated. That was massive. And the fact that he went on to influence young Adler Erickson, this was incredibly important. Uh, but the same way that Plato got pretty much everything wrong and his stuff was built on, yeah, Freud did too. I just don't like that he was wrong and kind of a dick about it. <laughs> sure, he was doing a lot of cocaine. Yeah. That can bring out a bad side of people. That gives you a lot of ideas, not all of them good, but you get so many ideas that some of them have to be all right. I, I also think like he dug deep into childhood and, and parents in a way, which again, like my therapist obviously came up in a Freudian school and there's sometimes I want to be like, okay, I don't think this has anything to do with my mom, yeah. <laughs> but I do think it's always worth checking into that. And I certainly know people when I meet their parents and I'm like, oh, that's why you're the way you are. And this is, I think, important, too, that those who come from the Freudian school actually do have uh, often significant things to contribute here. The Freudian school is not the same as, as, as Freud himself, because there have been great advancements, and he did create a framework to build off of. The parts where he were wrong was that he, he focused so much on childhood in the wrong way. But he was uh, admittedly one of the first to focus on the significance of childhood, something that is now understood to be, I mean, something that is so obviously understood, it's one of those things that you kind of forget there had to be a first person. <laughs> but he was one of the first to be like, hey, you know what, maybe the stuff we went through before is relevant to the stuff we're going through now. Well, that's why they treated kids so shitty. They were just like, well, they're not people yet. Right. <laughs> Put them in the closet. They're little factory workers. <laughs> Here's though what I appreciate about Freud. He was just like, hey, if you don't believe this, there's something wrong mentally with you. And so everyone else was too afraid to say anything. So they just went along with it. It's like, yeah, he knows what he's talking about. Freud was to psychology as Wes Anderson is to comedy, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but also, how powerful do you have to be to say everyone wants to fuck their mom and no one to say, are you sure it's not just you? <laughs> Maybe this is a you thing. <laughs> so I think someone tweeted once, like, you, well, to understand, you should have seen Freud's mom. She was like, fuck, it's so hot. 
And I thought that was so funny. I thought that was so funny. That's a fantastic joke. But like, yeah, no, he was very much in the heavy, like everyone's mom is super hot. We all want to fuck him, right? And it's just like, no, no, Freud. It's just like, mm, did you have a did you have a dream with a cigar in it? Because that means you're gay and you don't want to fuck your mom because of the gay. Yeah. It's like yeah. that's not fair <laughs> but i do think and this is why i don't think we talked did we talk about about incest how i like incest jokes we're like one of the things i do what i think is interesting and why i like freud talking maybe too much about sex is i do think like we have physical impulses not necessarily fucking or sucking but like if you look at i, I if you go to the zoo and you see a bunch of chimpanzees they're a lot more physically intimate with everybody, the kid, with grandma, with mom and dad and sister and brother, than we are. And, like, I would argue that we do deprive ourselves some kind of physical affection, not just coming everywhere on everybody. <laughs> but, like, I do think, especially in, in Western society, because it's the only one I know, intimately, it's that, like, we deprive ourselves of a lot of physical pleasures, however mild they may be, and that does lead to feelings of loneliness and school shooters. That maybe, you know, if they, if their mom just, <laughs> I shouldn't say what I was gonna say, <laughs> but I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I think, like, you can only talk especially back then you can only talk about sex if you're willing to go like fucking deep in there. Yeah. And then you can pull back from fucking mom to like, Oh, maybe you wish your mom hugged you more or, you know, wiped your butt when you were three. Cause you needed that. For some reason. <laughs> I don't know. That takes a lot of guts to say in the 19, whatever's I'm regretting coming so hot out of the gate on Freud because I did not know you knew like Every I looked at a list of what did Freud actually contribute, and there were like ten really good points. And I thought, is this worth getting into? It's there's probably more bad stuff. And Jean Marco knows every single one of them very well. I should have slowed down on this one. <laughs> Can I rewind before when you were implying that if uh, moms fucked their kids more, there'd be no school shooters? <laughs> <laughs> That's it's a theory. We can't test it. Out. <laughs> All right, so we we've hit the the actual benefits of, of Freud, and then I will ad admit that there actually were some because the foundation that he created was significant. And uh, Jean Marc is right; the fact that we, this was suddenly recognized. Look, what we need. Every person wants to have sex, or almost every person. Obviously, now asexual is, is thankfully respected too. This is something we should be talking about. And I think these were just two different theories. This your childhood affects you. Everyone wants to have sex are two very important different theories and he really tied it together a bit too much of everyone wants to have sex because of what happened in their childhood for these specific reasons and those were a couple where, where a lot of the issues arose but beyond that i mean he he did uh greatly influence young and adler and behaviorism is then introduced in 1913 where as opposed to psychoanalysis it focuses on observable and measurable behavior Right after this, you start getting into the development of some very harsh experimental stuff. But in the 1950s, you also get suddenly the first medicines that can contribute to mental health. And this is a really significant development. So I, I think that basically takes up to the stuff that you've heard of today. You're, you're probably already familiar with. Let's get into where it went wrong. Jean-Marco, where did it go wrong? Sure. So I, I worry right now with the proliferation of uh, online therapy that we are getting to a fast food version of something. And it's, it's tough for me to argue because therapy to me is a very ethereal thing where it's like, I guess my principles are it's a human being that has a, uh, uh, you see on a regular basis that has distance from your life. I think being in person is an important element that is like easily dismissed 
but we we know from all the Zoom shit we've been doing on in whether it be shows or whether it be talking that there is a disconnect with what this is. That there's something about being in a room with each other, the way you visualize them, smell them, hear them, everything. We're creating a version of it that might be more easily accessible, but allows people to more easily go in and out of it casually. I know a lot of these now where like you can text your therapist every time you're having a problem. And and again, maybe they'll do studies that these models are more beneficial. But I think like therapy is a relationship and like any relationship, whether it be a friendship, parental or romantic. If you told me you never met the person in person, I'd be very skeptical of what you're able to to find with that that being. And there's all sorts of apps that some of my friends use. And like part of me feels glad that they're finally doing something. But then another part of me is like, where's the accountability? You know, the same way you're able to be scammed. I'm not saying these people are being scammed, but the way you're more able to pick up cues that something's off in person that are harder to discern online like you just don't get that in-depth thing that makes me love it. And maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm full of shit in terms of like maybe it is better that everyone have a light version of this rather than an intense version. I do think it's it's kind of the same way we're replacing gyms with home workouts and it'll fuck up people's you know ability to do form properly. That convenience is not inherently make convenience can be detrimental to effect. And that's what I fear the most. There's a, a lot of issue that part of it, it being that therapy to really uncover issues is traumatic. You're working. I mean, counseling can be something that, that takes years. You know, it's something you can do for the rest of your life. Therapy is this was against my my abnormal psych professor focused on said therapy for the treatment of an issue should be six months. If you're not past that in six months, this is time to find someone new. Counseling continues forever. So by the way, you've been in therapy for years, don't feel like, oh, I should be done now. You can do this for the rest of your life. It can be a very good thing. But if you're really dealing with those traumatic issues, it takes unearthing trauma and it takes a vulnerability and the ability to distance yourself and say, you know what, there's there's no one here to, to see me. For some people, maybe it helps them be more vulnerable. I think for a lot of people, it probably keeps them from being the kind of vulnerable that they need to be to work through these issues. I like one thing I'll say, like I have, you know, whatever minor degree of OCD one would want to assign me. But like I will, if I'm talking about someone in a particularly harsh way or a way that if they hurt, it would be would hurt them greatly. I have this impulse that my phone has accidentally called them and they've been listening the whole time. Yeah. And in person, I have to confront that. And if if I really need to check, she's going to see that and we're going to address the feeling I had. But the other day I had that thought. I didn't want to interrupt the flow we were having. And I you know, away from the computer screen, flipped it over, flipped it back. And it's like, that's small, obviously. But in that way, I got to sneak, I mean, in a way that was a lie. I was able to tell a white lie like that. And I think that lie creates a certain degree of distance. And on a computer, I mean, I'm going to therapy and I want it to work. So I'm trying to force myself to focus. If I'm a little less disciplined, what's stopping me from checking Twitter? What's stopping me from like, looking at someone over there, getting a blowjob the whole time. I mean, there's so many things that you could do. And I hope it's used for people to get hooked and really try it out. 
but I worry it's going to be the end point and people will be unsatisfied with the results. That That's my only fear. You know, I think that is an issue, especially because a lot of people are kind of begrudgingly in therapy. They know they need help, but they don't want to do this. If you found the right therapist, hopefully pretty quickly, you started feeling like, oh, wow, this is significant. I should be here. I should put the work in. But for people that aren't in that stage, then it's it's a lot more like, oh, yeah, I can do this and say I went to therapy and then just you know, it, it's out of my mind as soon as it's over. And that's not how therapy works. Therapy is a constant process. It doesn't end because the session ended. You keep working on yourself. I've known people who have been like going to therapy because they felt they had to go to therapy that then would brag about like getting away with stuff. I've known, I've known friends who like have actually been like, oh yeah, I, I don't want to bring these things up and like get away with like lying to their therapist. I'm like, well, what's the point? Why are you doing it? Like, this does not have to be a space of something you can get away with or hi- like, this is somebody who you can give everything to and just kind of like say, like, uh, I grew up Catholic and a big thing was just like, for some people confession is what their therapy is it's not so much because they are back and forth they don't want a dialogue they just want to unload everything in their soul to somebody who can never speak of it ever again (laughs) and for some people that's what it is it's it's a weekly it's a secular weekly confessional and it's i'm sure it's it's great in those regards for them. But yeah, if you're going to go in there, you're not going to go into tear and talk to a priest and lie about what your sins were. You're just not going to go, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, then, and then obviously I want to say that, you know, there's obviously, I've heard not fully anecdotal, but not immediate friends, but friends of friends. Therapy is rife with abuse. I mean, especially when you bring up the church, I can't help but think like therapy, there, there are plenty of cases of therapists either being abusive or or sexually abusive or... Or you hear just therapists that... Uh, did you watch uh, Chris Gethard's Career Suicide? No. Um, so it, it was his special that was on HBO. It was very good. and uh, But he talked about his therapist. And his therapist, he, you know, he talks about basically how terrible his therapist is. And he talks about it in a way where I was... Part of me had an alarm where I was like, Chris, if you had killed yourself these things about your therapist would not be as funny. Right. Like she sounds like she's truly toxic. And I, I've heard I, I some other comedian talking about like her therapist was a monster to her, but she liked it. I think it might have been Nikki Glaser. I could be wrong. But like I hear I heard it and I was like, this sounds even worse. Right. <laughs> and again, maybe I. it's just like it, it's very I remember when I went to the, the White Institute where I got my therapist, which so some school where she was getting some degree. I remember there was a Orthodox Jewish guy like with I don't know, Hasidic but he had like he had the, the 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 what is it called? Yeah, and the curls. And um, you know, in my mind, when we talk about honesty, I'm like, I could not be with someone at least outwardly religious like that because my honest opinion is you are fucking nuts. That's my <laughs> honest like. But that's like if we're if we want to get into like my guts, like that is the honest take I have. That if you think you need to wear this, I think that's crazy. Yeah, and. All that is to say is like I got so lucky with my person that there's so many bad people out there that uh, it's it's one of these professions that is very much an art. And like any art, there's there's a slew of of bad actors. Right. No. And I, I think that that speaks to to the aspect of, by the way, for anyone who is considering getting therapy now and can't see them in person, if you find the right therapist and you're committed, there are plenty of ways around this. Don't think like, oh, I probably shouldn't go to therapy until this is all over. A lot of people need therapy even more now, and they're finding ways around it. Yeah. 
but a really good therapist is also paying attention to your movement and to your response and being able to notice these little things and see why it's significant. And so much of that is removed when you've got the distance. And when, if it was Nikki Glaser that, that said, oh, I, I liked it, for a really good therapist, they're going to be able to see exactly what their client needs and give different responses. But if she's just like that to every patient, that's a huge problem. And I think that distance makes it a lot harder for a, a therapist to tell what their patient needs too. And I've been seeing my therapist over Zoom I mean, it's it's almost coming up on a year now. Really? How's that going? I mean, do you feel like, how does it compare to the in-person? It's not the same. Like, there's some days, when, when days are like, when I'm feeling worse than others, I really kind of crave the being in person. Yeah. It's still very useful. It's still very useful. I tell you, like, you know, I, I got into this, this Twitter argument today, and like, if I had therapy today or tomorrow, it would feel good. I would be so grateful for it. There's times it feels like a chore and having to sit down on my computer for an hour and a half. But uh, it's good. It's definitely worth it. And I, If you can't see people in person like you can't right now, you should absolutely do it. I'm just saying that shouldn't be the end or you should explore in person if you are able. Sure. As I mentioned before, I started seeing my great therapist uh, when I was still able to go out. And then as I got worse and was pretty suddenly reached a point of bedridden. And at that point, phone conference wasn't really a, a thing that was, was done, but we still did it. And it, it was not, I was very glad he was there, that we kind of found a way, but it was nowhere near the same as having a person there to engage and, and read my responses. And I, I think that was really, it was that what was so helpful was that this was a vulnerable time and I could feel connected and obviously not in the same way I connected with my friends or family, but in like, okay, all of this stuff is out there now. And that disconnect made it surprisingly challenging uh, when we were suddenly doing phone conference instead. Yeah, I agree with that because I, I do the, the Zoom thing now and there is a feeling of when it's on your computer, it's escapable. I can shut this. Oh, oh, we're breaking <laughs> up. We will have to do this later. You know, that I haven't done it, but like it's always an option in the back of your head that like I can get out of this immediately if I wanted to. If I'm in a room with a door and I have that social nicety of just like I can't stand up and walk, you know, you're trapped and your focus is right there. I cannot have my therapist here and then Twitter on this side or, you know, whatever your, you know, Neopets, on, you know, whatever you're <laughs> dicking around with on online. Like you have to be actually present in, in a physical one. But, you know, if some people are just like, look, I like the fact that like if I'm on the phone, they can't see me and I can unburden myself that way. If that's your thing, yeah, go for it. But I, I definitely benefit greatly from an in-person scenario. I agree with, with all of that. And I, I do want to touch briefly on the where it went wrong as a whole is just bad concepts of therapy. And this is a more recent where it's like, hey, for some people this works, for some it doesn't. But we also had the whole asylum era <laughs> where it's like, hey, you know what? People are crazy. There's not much we can do about it. Maybe locking them up will be a thing. And this is pretty much the end of the thought process. And, and we've got a lot of, of treatments that go from, I mean, they develop phrenology, which is, is not a treatment, but a theory of psychology where it's like, you know what? We can tell by the bumps on your head what kind of person you are. And this lasted for way too long. But the one I, I really wanted to hit on was Nellie Bly, because she 
is so fascinating. She was this American journalist who you've probably heard of in, in some form. She worked for the Pittsburgh Dispatch, like a 20-year-old, writing a series of investigative articles on women factory workers until factory owners complained and they put her on women's pages. And she didn't like that, so she went to Mexico to work as a foreign correspondent and only laughed when they were going to arrest her because she wrote critiques about journalists being silenced. And then, of course, was the first person to actually go around the world in less than 80 days. But in between those two things, she uh, gets back uh, after Mexico and she She's, you know, put back on more what was women writers and she doesn't want to do it. So she moves to New York and she agrees to pretend to be crazy to investigate reports of brutality at the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell Island. And uh, there's a, a book of it now. It's, it's absolutely, uh, I mean, just the details are incredible. The, the way she was was treated uh, was in, insane, beaten at the, this time. Of course, they also had hydrotherapy, which is basically they just submerge you in ice water. And that's going to make you better. <laughs> it was the idea that the shock to your system will fix your brain. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the level of shock to the system that, that they also had insulin shock and electroshock. There was a lot of like, hey, we're going to <laughs> we're just going to put your body through hell. and That's going to make you better. And I don't want this to be the focus because honestly, it's just so negative. But I, I think it speaks to the aspect of the lack of understanding of the process here. And as it developed, the more the process got better, which again, the, the boom was really early. 1900s when we start to realize, wow, there are a lot of different ways to we can be thinking about this. And I'm, I'm glad to see that we're finding ways around this because I know a lot of people have gotten into therapy during COVID. But also, I personally have a hard time picturing that. I, again, I think as Wen said, for those people that need the distance, it's probably the absolute perfect scenario. For those that need to be vulnerable, I, I can't imagine it lives up to it. But I'm really glad it's something that's being talked about more. I know there's still such stigma around going to therapy. I guess that's the other aspect of the fad that worries me is that like you, you soften its effects and then it's easier to undermine like there's something about hearing about podcasters advertising therapy programs casually that rubs me the wrong way where it's just like I just think the nuance of therapy is greater than a mattress. And it's like that's partly what, what worries me. And, and when you see all these these all the ways it went wrong and, and these madhouses or uh, you know, Gary Goldman talked a lot about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and electroshock therapy, which he had it's, it's renamed something else now, but he had some tremendous success with an updated version of what that was. And part of me has tried to understand or empathize with the fact that this history is one of the reasons they're not into it. I remember when I saw Get Out and, you know, I certainly am, am no expert, would never profess to be an expert on all the ways that the medical community in America has uh, completely mistreated black people. But like Get Out, like one of the things I remember seeing it and being like, oh, no, this is this is making therapists look like evil doers of the system. And many times they were many times medical people were. But like in Get Out, you know, she is a therapist and she is hypnotizing him or whatever. And and it's like part of the skepticism is not just because I mean, there's a lot of especially with men, a certain feeling of like, I don't want to go there. But also it's because there is a history of abuse and in nuance, people are able to sneak in malintent and they have for centuries and they still are doing it now. And that's why, you know, for me, online therapy, it's just like what's what's next? The Catholic Church creates their version of easily accessible online therapy, but it's with their motive. Scientology, which is like notoriously anti-psychology, but also a lot of what they do is a version of psychology that some of it's useful. Some of it's useful too. Some of it's like, you know, dealing with your 
your your flaws and then they sneak in this other shit and get more and more money out of you so it is a dangerous weapon when when because you're open you have to open yourself up to be vulnerable and when you're vulnerable people can take advantage of that in a heartbeat i was doing a rewatch of how i met your mother during the beginning of quarantine because what else am i gonna do i was locked in my house but like there's like a thing where he's just like where she's seeing a therapist and he literally just goes I can no longer see you as a client so that we can date. And it's just like, that's insanely fucked up. And that happens in like a few shows where it's just like, well, if we stop our professional relationship now, then we can date. And it's like, that's incredibly unethical for one and illegal because that accounts as abuse. Like it happened in us. I Seinfeld, I was doing a rewatch and she's dating her therapist. And it's just like, that can't, you can't. That's, <laughs> that is completely fucked up. Well, that's what happened with Freud. There's a whole movie. It's called Freud and Young, or there was some movie with Kira Knightley. And it's about just Freud and Young taking turns and having really fucked up sex with this beautiful Kira Knightley. And uh, yeah, I'm sure a lot rife with abuse, rife with abuse. <laughs> I look at my therapist less as a lover and more as a mother personally, which I know for you two could also be a lover. But for me, yeah. she is just a mother. <laughs> no school shootings here. <laughs> God, I feel like that's the only line people are going to remember. <laughs> that That's it. That's the tagline now. <laughs> No, but I think when we were framing this episode, that was one of the things I was thinking about, because as I'm going through the history, you know, we obviously wanted to start with the positive experiences and the encouragement to, to go do therapy, because this is such a complex issue. This is not something that can be condensed down to a podcast. The the history of it is is so massive, too. And the fact is, as much horrible as there, stuff as there was, it is something that is so linearly built on that you see where it started and you see how it got here. And the development is incredible. And it's a shame that there was so much horror in the past. It's a shame that there are still terrible therapists out there. But that's why you stop seeing those therapists and don't give up. Go find another one until you find your right one because it is a world of difference when you find one that gets you. Don't wait till it's bad. Don't wait till it's bad. That's the biggest problem. Everyone is just like, I'm going to wait until I'm like fucking crying in at like my cousin's bar mitzvah like <laughs> don't wait until it's bad just do it now i'm so grateful i'm so grateful to have it in my life i'll just also add that uh it's going to be one of those things that if you're going to do it commit to it yeah yes there are bad therapists out there but if you have one make sure you're committing to it you've seen people at the gym who are walking around sitting on different machines to check their phones <laughs> and like they're just like well the, the gym's not working for me you know, if you're going in there just to like fill an hour of time and you're not going to actually do anything about it. Yeah, therapy might not be for you. But if you're going to go, if you're going to go into the room, make sure you are committed and that you're going to do it because it is something that is very helpful but you're only going to get out of it what you put in. Normally we do like in their defense as a separate section, but I feel like in each aspect of this, we thought it was so important. I think all of us are concerned that you that some audience member is going to turn into just the bad part and think, oh, okay, I definitely shouldn't go to therapy. So we fulfilled this, this entire thing within their defense along the way. I, I think we pretty much explained it, but mostly in their defense, yeah, if you find the right person, it works. And that's ultimately what it is. Oh, also we should touch on ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. Now, yes, that is not just the horrific thing it started as. A lot of treatments have developed and and that is helpful to so many people. So please, you know, go talk to somebody. There are people that can help. I think everyone is having a hard time right now. There is no one that would not benefit from therapy. Does that cover it, guys? Is there something else? 
That sounds good to me. All right. <laughs> I think we solved all the problems. I think we're I think we're all set. <laughs> I don't know. I think we saved therapy. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us, guys. That is the history of therapy, which was greatly condensed. It is a fascinating subject, and you should go look into it more. Where it went right is the fact that it has helped so many people. Where it went wrong is bad therapists and a system that does not work for everybody, which is why you have to just keep going until you find the right one. We hope you enjoyed this. As always, we enjoyed making it. Thank you so much to Gianmarco Cerezi for joining us. And you can watch Shelf Life right now on Amazon, which I recommend. The visual of doing this during quarantine was very interesting, especially having these different locations. If you can go see the video with it, it's great. But uh, if you don't have Amazon, it's going to be on Sirius and Pandora February 23rd and available everywhere else March 2nd. So go watch, listen, do both. It's fantastic. Gianmarco, thank you so much. Thank you very much, guys. Pleasure. When? Thank you, as always. I'm going to see you next week. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps us out so much. And we'll be back next week. I hope we'll see you then, too. See you next week, Gwen. Bye. Bye. Bye.